the book of Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, as it's termed. And uh, I hope you have read this through today. I should have reminded you this morning that uh, uh, part of our program involves reading through these books uh, during the week ahead, or at least the Sunday, if it's a short book, and uh, come, therefore, with an understanding of what the book says. This book is unique in Scripture. There is no other book like it. It's the only book in the Bible which reflects a human rather than a divine point of view. This book is filled with error. That may surprise you, but it's filled with error, and yet it's wholly inspired. Now, I don't know if that confuses any of you or not, because many of us feel that inspiration is a guarantee of uh, that whatever is said is true, and not necessarily. Inspiration, you see, really guarantees that it's an accurate statement of a particular point of view. Whether it be God's point of view, that would be truth. If it's man's point of view, it might be true and it might not. If it's the devil's point of view, it also might be true or it might not. And its ultimate end, of course, is is evil. And inspiration guarantees an accurate reflection of these various points of view. Therefore, you see, the Bible indeed does have much error in it. It's uh, whenever the the, uh, false views of men are quoted or set forth. The Bible is speaking error. Whenever Satan speaks, largely what he has to say is error, and even the truth that he uses is used in a twisted, distorted form that makes it erroneous. So it's quite possible, of course, to quote the Bible and to prove all kinds of things by the quoting of the Bible and have it utterly wrong, because the Bible is filled with error in that sense. But it's always it always points out the error which it presents and makes it clear that it's error. And thus the case is the case with this book here. This book, uh, it, there's no book in the Bible that's more misused than the book of Ecclesiastes because of this remarkable character of it. This is the favorite book, of course, of the atheists and the agnostics. They love the book of Ecclesiastes and many of the cults love the book of Ecclesiastes because they quote the erroneous viewpoints of this book and and give the impression that this is what Scripture as the Word of God or the divine point of view has to say about life. But this book is very careful in its introduction to point out that what it has to say is not divine truth. This is the human view of life. Uh, you'll find that over and over throughout the whole course of this book One phrase repeats itself again and again. Under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. Everything is seen from that point of view as that which is under the sun. That is, that which appears to man restricted to to the human viewpoint. It excludes the divine revelation. Therefore, it's man's view of life apart from divine revelation. And as such, it's a very accurate uh, summation of what man thinks. Now, it's not atheistic, because to be atheistic is to be unrealistic. And the Bible's never unrealistic. Uh, An atheist is one who has 
has convinced himself by long argument that there is no God, even though every uh, inward testimony of his conscience and of his inner life and his and of the structure of the universe around him is a constant witness to the fact that there is a God. And it's only, by and large, the educated man who is an atheist, because uh, educated at least in some degree, or the man who desires not to face life in all its reality, because he alone is Want, wants to convince himself that there is no God to, which he, to whom he must answer. But this book is not atheistic, even though it's written from a humanistic point of view. It views God, as man in general views God, as a, not a very vital concern to life, sort of a high-calorie dessert which you can take or leave just as you like, and certainly not in a highly personal relationship. There's no understanding of God as a vital living Lord, an authority in life throughout this book. Now, it's very important that you see that at the beginning of the book. The book opens with this, with this introduction, the words of the preacher. And that's, again, a mistranslation. I think I'm right in saying that it was, it's to Martin Luther that we owe this translation of the Hebrew word here. But it's not accurate. Uh, it, uh, the word means preacher in one sense, but I think it's much better translated the debater, the words of the debater or the arguer. And as you read the book, you'll see that that's what this book is about. It's a series of arguments set forth as man views the world and life around about him. And uh, it is the preacher, of course, or the debater in this case, was the son of David. The king in Jerusalem was none other than Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, according to the biblical record. And Solomon, of course, was in an unusual position to perform the experiments and make the investigations that this book reflects. For during the 40 years of Solomon's reign, there was utter peace in the kingdom of Judah and, and Israel. Uh, there were no tribes uh, around them uh, creating uh, warfare or strife. He didn't have to bother himself with military life. And he had all the time he needed to, make, to pursue the investigations of life that are reflected in this book. He had all the wealth that he needed. He had a keen, logical, discerning, penetrating mind, which had gained for him a reputation as the wisest man in the world of his day. He had all that he needed in the way of material supply and goods, and he set himself to discover what life is all about. Therefore, this is one of the most valuable books in the Bible, because it's life viewed from the standpoint of the natural man apart from divine revelation. Now, as you read through the book, you notice that it all centers around this text in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the debater. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, unfortunately, I think that word vanity doesn't mean as much to us today as it used to. We don't use it quite in this sense, very frequently, at least today. With us, vanity is, a, is conceit over personal looks. We think that a woman who spends a half hour primping in the mirror every time she goes through her bedroom is a victim of vanity, or a man if he does the same thing. And, of course, that's true. I always think of the woman who said to her pastor one day, I, I must confess to you, pastor, that I'm suffering from a terrible sin. 
I suffer from the sin of vanity. Every morning before I leave, I, I admire myself in the mirror for half an hour. He said, my dear lady, it's not the sin of vanity you suffer from, it's the sin of imagination. <laughs> but you see, vanity doesn't mean that anymore. Vanity here means emptiness, futility, meaninglessness. And as the debater has concluded his summary of life, he gives his conclusion at the beginning of the book. He says, it's all futility. It's emptiness. It's meaninglessness. There's no sense to it. Now, he supports this with a series of arguments as he has gone through the philosophies of life. And the most interesting thing, perhaps, about this book is that here you have a, a uh, gathering together of all the philosophies by which men have attempted to live. There's nothing new under the sun, the book says. And how true that is. Here we are, some... 30 centuries almost removed from the time of the writing of this book. And yet nothing new has been produced in the world of men, the ideas of men, than is reflected right here. And all the major philosophies are right here that men are attempting to live by today. In chapter 1, beginning with verse 4, you have what we might call the mechanistic view of the universe. The scientific outlook, if you like. The view of the universe is nothing but a great grinding machine. And the debater in his investigation of it is lost in the clanking of the gears. Here's the monotonous grind of nature repeating itself again and again. And yet in many ways this is a most remarkable passage. For there are some revelations of here of, of, uh, of careful scientific import long before men of science ever ever discovered these things. You notice, for instance, uh, you have the circuit of the winds. The wind blows to the south and then goes around to the north, and round and round goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. Men didn't discover that about the weather and the circuit of the winds for centuries after this was written. And then you have also here the... Uh, uh, the uh, uh, circulation evaporation cycle by uh, the evaporation and circulation cycle of the waters all streams run to the sea but the sea is not full and to the place where the streams flow there they flow again that is the uh, rivers run down to the sea and then they evaporate and they come back up to the mountains again and the rain falls and they run down to the sea again and the writer has discovered this as he has observed nature and he says all this is vanity, emptiness. He feels the utter wearisomeness of this. So what is his outlook? Life just goes on, and we're lost in the meaningless universe. Nothing but the clanking of gears is heard. You, you recognize, now this is a very common view today, isn't it? And the end of it is emptiness. What is man in the midst of a universe like that? Just a mere little, uh, a tiny little uh, 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 entity of no meaning or significance at all. And then in chapter 2, the writer goes on to examine what we might call the philosophy of hedonism. That is, the pursuit of pleasure as the chief end of life. What gives life meaning? Well, millions today say it's, it's just to enjoy yourself, to have a good time. Live it up. Do as you like. 
Make the most out of life and find pleasure. That's the purpose of living. That's why we're here. And the writer says, I said to myself, come now, I will make a test of pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. And he goes on to uh, uh, divide it up. He said, first I tried the idea of pleasure as laughter, as mirth. That is, when people get together and laugh and have a good time together, this is enjoyable. Well, maybe this is what's needed to make life uh, enjoyable all the way through. So he sought out uh, opportunities where he could give himself to the enjoyment of a, a genial, gracious, laughing, happy company. But he said after so long it became a weariness of spirit. And even that lost its power to move him. And it was weariness. And then he says, I tried the gathering of possessions. I thought perhaps this comes from wealth. So in verse 9, I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. But he gave himself to the accumulating of riches, wealth, possessions. How many are living on that level today? When he saw through, he says, but it too was emptiness of spirit. Didn't satisfy me. I didn't find what I was looking for. And then he says, in verse 12, I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. That is the opposites of life in the realm of ideas. What can a man do who comes after the king? Only what he's already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. Oh, he says, this is better at least. Here's something that, that really is interesting for the time being to pursue all these various ideas of life. Ah, but he said, I found it comes out at the same place. It all ends up the same way. The fool and the wise men die alike. And as far as life is concerned, their life is as utterly, is as insignificant the one as the other. doesn't make any difference. It's good for a while. But it ends up in the same place. Then in chapter 3, or uh, let me point out in chapter 2, how he comes to this terrible conclusion. Verse 17, so I hated life because of what is done. Here's the man who's given himself now to pleasure and to uh, possessions and to the pursuit of wisdom in the realm of ideas. And he says, I ended up, I hated life. I hated all my toil. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair. That's all that he could find in this. Just as many today are finding the very same thing. Then in chapter 3, he uh, views life from what we might call the existential viewpoint. That's a popular term today. It's fashionable to believe in existentialism. And to think, of course, that it's something new on the on the. Uh, stage of world ideas, but it's nothing new at all. It's as old as the thinking of man. We might call this fatalism, because there's always a fatalistic element in existentialism. I think we in America perhaps hardly realize why existential thinking has so gripped the minds of people in our world today. And perhaps to uh, think about it a moment may help us to understand what this dominant philosophy of our day is. Existentialism largely was born, at least in its popular appeal, at the close of World War II, when Europe was just simply laid in shambles 
by the destructiveness of the war. The great cities of Europe were in ruins, and all that men had previously pinned their hopes on, the government and religion of man, as they knew it, had been utterly powerless to arrest the the catastrophe, the terrible uh, 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 chaos into which the world came in World War II. And so at the end of it, the men were left utterly hopeless as far as anything that they could lay hold of. And they said, what can we trust? We can't trust religion. It did nothing to to stem the awful tide of imperial of tyranny under Hitler and so on. And we can't trust government because it's the very, it's, it's the very expression of power. So they said, what can we trust? And somebody suggested the only thing we can trust is our own reactions to life. As we live through things, we have certain feelings. As we go through certain events, we have certain reactions to them. And uh, uh, no matter whether it's the same, uh, no two of us may have the same reaction, but at least the reaction of each one is real to it, to this person. So they said, all we can really trust is our own reaction to the events of life, to existence. And that's where existentialism comes from. Now this writer says, I tried that. I went through life and I discovered that there was a reaction to the events. There are certain inescapable things in life. There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up, a time to kill and a time to heal and a time to break down and a time to build up and a time to weep and so on. I just went through life and I saw that all these things, these events come upon us. And I saw also, he said, that man has a desire for something deeper, for finding significance, for finding meaning in life. Look at verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's mind. That is, man can never rest content with simply external explanations of things. He has to, he has to look deeper. He has eternity in his heart. And this writer says, I saw this. I saw that uh, uh, the events of life are inescapable. But when it all was over, I saw that all go to one place, all are from the dust, all turn to dust again, and that there's nothing better than that a man should enjoy his work, for that's his lot. And who can bring him to see what will be after? Futility, hopelessness. What's the use? Then he turns to capitalism, of all things. He said, I tried this. Chapter 4 sets forth the competitive enterprise of life. When we Americans hear that word capitalism, we think it's a wonderful word. We think it uh, describes the uh, vigorous young insurance executive out to make uh, join the million dollar a month club. And, uh, uh, or some... Uh, 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 some uh, high-powered executive in business who is building an empire for his own. And we admire this. We say capitalism is the answer. And of course the communists are telling us this is not true. And remember that the word of God always ultimately looks at life as it really is. Now capitalism is not a final answer to think. It may be a better answer. I'm convinced it is a better answer than communism. 
But this writer says, I tried this competitive enterprise, and I saw that it resulted in injustices and oppressions and uh, inequities of life. And all the way through, I discovered that there's a selfish motivation behind it, and it results in, in inequity in life. And so it all comes out the same place, he says. Better is a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will no longer take advice. What good does it do to get to the top of the heap when a young man down here doesn't have anything yet has a few smart ideas can surge ahead of you? What's the difference? What's, what's, the, what's, the, what's the good of it all, he said. And again it comes out emptiness. And then in chapter 5, he tries religion. Religion, which recognizes that God exists and tries to do good and be good and behave itself. And yet he says, as he goes through this chapter, he points out that there's no practical value to it. That religious people can do very uh, unethical things and oppress the poor. And uh, there's no power in that kind of a dead, empty, religious formalism to arrest or change this kind of thing. He says the religious life doesn't work either. That is religion in that sense. And it comes out again in the same place. Emptiness and vanity. Chapter 6, you have his experiments along the line of materialism, what we would call the good life. And uh, his conclusion is that even though a man has everything, verse 3, if a man begets a hundred children, That's the wealth of the Hebrew, of course. And lives many years, so that the days of his years are many. But he does not enjoy life's good things, and also has no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better off than he. That is, even if you have everything. And in trying to satisfy yourself that, you discover that there's a craving that these things can't meet. Then you're just as, you're no better off than if you'd never been born. All comes out the same place. In chapter 7, he approaches life from the standpoint of stoicism, of a cultivated indifference to events. And his conclusion is that the best thing to do uh, when you view life this way is to simply uh, strike for a happy medium. Be moderate in all things. Look at verse 15. In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. That is, righteousness doesn't always pay. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in evil doing. Wickedness sometimes does pay, judged by things under the sun. Therefore, he says, be not righteous overmuch, and do not make yourself overwise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not wicked overmuch, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? That is, strike for a happy medium. How many times have you heard these verses quoted? As though this is exactly what the Bible teaches. No, this is a man looking at life, and he says, the best way is to just try to get through without and avoid the extremes as much as possible, and uh, don't volunteer for anything. That's his viewpoint of life. Moderation in all. Then chapters 8... Uh, 9 and 10 and the first 8 verses of chapter 11 are all a connected discourse examining what we might call the wisdom of the world. That is, the common sense views of life, if you like. Chapter 8, his exhortation is to us to 
uh, to the man who's approaching life from this point of view, try to master the power structures of the world in which you live. Try to understand who's in authority and who isn't, and get in good with those in authority, and, and uh, do your best to uh, be on the right side at the right time. That's his philosophy. We recognize that, don't we? Verse 17 sums up his, uh, his conclusion along that line. Uh, he says, Then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Now he says, I don't offer you much hope along this line. But if you uh, get on the right side and get with the powers that are, you'll at least uh, get along as best you can. But you won't find out any answers to life. It's all futility, you see. Then in chapter 9, he examines the value judgments of the world. Uh, and points out again that they all end in the same place. Uh, verse uh, 11, again I saw that under the sun the race is not always to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to the men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. Now, he says, you see, these men who say, uh, like Benjamin Franklin, early to bed, early to rise, makes a man happy, wealthy, and wise. A penny saved is a penny earned. All these things, he says, they have a, a, a show of wisdom about them, but they don't always work. I've seen the, the time when the race was not always to the swift, and the battle didn't always go to the strong. And the uh, bread to the wise, or the riches to the intelligent, doesn't always work. I've seen some very stupid rich people, <laughs> you see. So that uh, these worldly values and judgments are not accurate. And the thing that's conclusive about them all, he says, they all end in death. For man, verse 12, for man does not know his time, like fish which are taken in an evil net, and like birds which are caught in a snare, suddenly, unexpectedly, with a heart attack. So the sons of men are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. What difference does it make? And then in chapter 10, he, ex he exhorts to a certain amount of discretion in life. Be temperate, be diligent, be cautious, be accommodating. Try to get by as best you can and be alert to the situation. But underlying it all is a selfish, uh, enlightened self-interest. That's the motive for it all. And in chapter 11, the first eight verses, it's all the matter of diligence. In order to get something out of life, you need to work. You need to apply yourself. In the morning sow your seed. At evening withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. But then his conclusion, for if a man lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many, and all that comes is vanity. You see? He's proved his case, hasn't he? All the way through here. It's the same thing. It all comes out the same place. Life lived apart from God. But now, here at this point comes the change. In verse 9 of chapter 11, all through chapter 12, you have the contrast of a life lived in the recognition 
and the enthronement of the person of God. And this is his really, really his conclusion to all of this. And it begins on this great note, especially for young people. Rejoice, rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. That doesn't mean punishment, that means examination. Into uh, into uh, examination of your life. But rejoice, that's the word, you see. This is God's desire for human life. And it is set in direct contrast with the conclusion that this debater has come to as he's run through life previously to this. Six different times throughout this account, you find him playing the same string on his violin over and over. The conclusion, the only thing that he has to say to the man who approaches life without a genuine commitment to God is this. Rejoice, and uh, that is, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you must die. Look how many times he says that. In chapter 2, verse 24, There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Look at um, chapter 5, verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and to be fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life which God has given him, for this is his lot. I skipped over chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should enjoy his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And then in uh, chapter 7, verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 15. And I commend enjoyment, for man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and enjoy himself, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of life which God gives him under the sun. Chapter 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with enjoyment, and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. And then uh, chapter 10, verse 19. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Practical, isn't it? Endeavors. You see? When you hear people talking this way today, when you see the worldly uh, living and, and acting on this basis, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we must die. Don't blame him. Don't blame him. What else has he got to say? This is the inevitable outcome of a, of a heart that approaches life at, by, uh, after ruling God out. When you rule God out of your life, this is always where you come. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we must die. And there is nothing that is more descriptive of utter, blank, dark pessimism than those words. Think of it. Eat, drink, and be merry. That is, live like an animal. This destroys all the glory of manliness and manhood. This reduces man to the, anima, to the level of the animal. That's the most hopeless statement that ever uttered. It's saying, what is life? Nothing at all. Utterly insignificant. Without any meaning. Utterly futile. All that we can do, therefore, is to just make the best we can. Eat, drink, and be merry. Life goes out like a candle flame. It's all over. Utter pessimism. Now, you see, 
That's life when it's lived without God. Now he contrasts that, contrasts it with that with what he says in this last chapter. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. And he goes on to describe in a beautiful poetic pas- uh, passage here what death is like to the man, to man. The silver cord is loosed. The, the sound of the grinding is low and so on. And then he comes to this final conclusion in, cha- in verse 13. The end of the matter is this. All has been heard. What's his final advice? Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole of man. Well, you see, you left out a word. It says this is the whole duty of man. No, I didn't leave it out. The translators put it in. That doesn't belong there. What the Hebrew says is, this is the whole of man. Or this is what makes man whole, if you like. Fear God. Now that doesn't mean be afraid of him. That means a loving respect which obeys him. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole of man. This is what makes man whole. And the secret of life is to enthrone God. In your youth, in the days of your youth. You want to find the secret of living and success so that the heart is satisfied and the spirit is enriched and brought to fullness of God's intention for man? Then remember thy creator in the days of thy youth before the evil days come. Enthrone God in the center of your life and you'll discover all that life is intended to be. And you'll be able to rejoice all the days of your life. There are a lot of young people here tonight, and I'm conscious of that. I can remember so well when as a teenager I was facing life myself and feeling all the uncertainty that teenagers feel from time to time, wondering whether this Christian idea that I had already known was right, feeling the allurement and the enticement of other ways of thinking. Uh, feeling the awful sense of uncertainty as to which is right, who is right, what are the answers to life. And looking back upon that time, I have great sympathy for young people as I, as I see them with a deep desire within, as I felt it then, not to waste my life, to want to live significantly. Every young person does that. But I can tell you this now, looking back to over 30 years to those days, I can say that God in grace led me to commit myself along the ways of Proverbs 3, 4 and 5. You know that passage, trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy path. And though I have to sing with with the hymnal, with the hymn, through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. I can also say with him, tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. I give t- testimony to the fact that the conclusion of the preacher here, of the debater, is accurate. Life only finds fulfillment in that philosophy which enthrones God at the center of life and acts in obedience to that enthronement. And the philosophy which begins in dust and ends in dust and grovels in the dust 
And uh, then says the dust is everything. That this is all that life is intended to be. That vanity is everything. Is the utmost folly. For the conclusion of the debater is everything is vanity. Unless you put God at the center of life. Let's bow together in prayer. Let's just stand together and be dismissed with this. Thank you, Father, for these words of wisdom from this ancient book. And for having recorded it for us, that in our, uh, our hunger for life, we need not experiment ourselves. We do not need to go down all these paths ourselves. We can believe this word. We can take it as genuine and accurate and build our lives around it. We pray for the young people in our midst tonight that they will have the courage, the manhood to, to believe, to take this word, to stand up and, and act upon it, to enthrone thee as the Lord of life and thus build their lives in grace and in strength and in beauty. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.